Hi, I'm Billy Shore. This is Add Passion and Stir. I'm in Washington, D.C. today with my sister, Debbie Shore, co-founder of Share Our Strength and partner on Add Passion and Stir, and David Beckman, who I've known for a long, long time, uh, who's the CEO of Bread for the World, doing amazing anti-hunger work in this country and around the world. Uh, and on the phone, we've got Andrew Zimmern, who everybody knows. He's in Missouri today, but he's somewhere different almost every day. You know him from the Travel Channel, the Food Network, um, and Andrew, you've got a new restaurant opening up in Minneapolis in uh, November? <laughs> yeah, like I don't have enough going on. I decided it would be a good idea this fall to open a restaurant and publish a children's book series. So, yeah, it's, uh, it, it's, it's an exciting time. And, and as always, the restaurant and, and the book are, are very intentional in the sense that I, I try not to do anything unless it has – uh, a service component and a wellness aspect to it, as well as a sensibility about adventure learning. If 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 a project doesn't have that, I tend to shunt it to the side. It's become just a, a really important part about how I take care of my decision making. So very excited to launch both of them. Um, and say a little bit more about the service component uh, woven into both the restaurant and the children's series. The book is an adventure reading series for, you know, kids ages, you know, 8 to 12, 8 to 13. Uh, it's under the title of the Alliance of World Explorers, and Volume 1 uh, is available uh, for pre-sale on Amazon right now. People can go to my website, andrewzimmern.com, and pre-order it. Uh, you know, I have a I have a 13 and a half year old and this book has been many years in the making. I wanted to write a a series of books that was as fun as Captain Underpants and <laughs> as uh but but I wanted to put, you know, a, a young protagonist and a couple of his friends into Raiders of the Lost Ark, Perils of Pauline, you know, historically uh, important times. It's a time traveling series. I wanted there to be 20% of medicine woven into the 80% of entertainment, much in the same way that bizarre food some people see as a fat white guy going around the world and eating <laughs> bugs, but is in fact a, a uh, you know a treatise on patience and tolerance and understanding between cultures. And the restaurant's called Lucky Cricket. The restaurant's called Lucky Cricket. Yeah. Op opening when? Uh, end of November, probably right before Thanksgiving. I can't wait. So, David Beckman, my sister and I have done a lot of these podcasts, have come to the sad conclusion that most of our guests are having a lot more fun than we are. <laughs> Clearly, that's the case with Andrew, right? I get jealous just listening to this. Uh, but one of the things that really strikes me about you, David, and Andrew is you both think about issues on a global level, particularly mm -hmm. as they relate to food. And as Andrew was talking about in terms of bringing together culture and patience and understanding, um, that's been a big part of your life's work as it relates to hunger and poverty, not just here in the United States, but around the world. Start by telling us a little bit about just what is Bread for the World and the kind of advocacy work that you do. Bread for the World's a faith-based uh, advocacy movement. We we connect with a couple million people now. We should and say they, you're a minister, speaking of I'm faith a minister, right? I'm you're a, a minister, minister and an economist. And an economist. But, but I've been doing advocacy with the U.S. Congress for more than 25 years. So that's really, you know, that's out of my uh, faith background and And that, requir that requires a lot of faith, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> it does. But actually, we win a lot. We win a lot. That's what what's exciting is that uh, 
grassroots people, regular people going to their members of Congress and saying they want them to do something for Africa or they want them to do something for hungry people in this country. You know, if if 100 people in a congressional district really want to get something done in Africa and they can get their member of Congress to support that often. Uh, and we would do work on, on global hunger and actually we had a lot of fun because <laughs> – and some of it's because the world as a whole has made unprecedented progress against hunger, poverty, and disease over the last three decades. Unprecedented. And most people don't know this, right? I mean, right. I and mean, in our country, in our country too, there's a lot of too, doom and gloom right now about the state of the world. In our country too, it's, it hasn't been as the, the progress has not as been been as dramatic as it's been in places like Ethiopia or Bangladesh. But we we have we have made progress against hunger and poverty. We know what to do, and uh, actually, I mean, a key part of that is getting the U.S. government to to play its role or provide some leadership. And we know that an advocate, uh, a local church, a local synagogue. An individual who really cares and makes it his or her business to to know the member of Congress, know staffers in the office, we can make a difference. The the brilliance of that is that that the really simple lesson is not only can citizens do stuff themselves. It's what spurred me 25 years ago before I was who I am today. I mean, I had no mm-hmm. platform. Um, I didn't have you know a pot to pee in. Uh, I was sober two years and had found myself in Minnesota um, and uh, actually a congressman and a senator. Uh, I heard them speaking, Senator Paul Wellstone and Congressman Jim Ramstead, mm-hmm. about the mental health parity uh, problems in America. And I just started volunteering and I got yeah. plugged into organizations simply by showing up the 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 success that we've had is amazing. I mean, you know, we, we are very close to having the first generation of Africans born that, you know, statistically are, are AIDS free. Um, a huge commitment on the Obama administration many years ago, uh, to tackle that problem head on and sad to and say, Bush and Bush. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> That's and, what's remarkable and, actually. And, 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 the the U S Congress and the presidency, well, on a bipartisan basis, are doing things yeah. for Africa. In the good days, that, when things no, were no, bipartisan. No, too. on Friday, just now, the, you know, the House passed the, the farm bill. To well, also something. the Global Food, yep. Food Security Act. Yep. So just on That's this exactly last right. week. Uh, so we have to make a big deal about these bipartisan Absolutely. Wins. This we is one, thing, one thing we can do together is yeah. um, move forward or support what Africans, other low-income people in other low-income parts of the world are doing. Uh, they're doing most of the work, but it makes a big difference if the U.S. government's on their side or not. And and so the fact that we have bipartisanship on global hunger issues is a tremendous benefit for the hungry people, but also I think it's a hopeful thing for our country. What are the components of the Global Food Security Act? When Obama was coming to power, there was a financial crisis, but there was also a global food, food crisis. And he saw that, and so... Um, he got the world to uh, move, to invest more in agriculture, and then they added nutrition to that, specific efforts to – we know a lot about how to help families get their – save their kids from malnutrition. So uh, that initiative has brought about 20 million people out of extreme poverty. Three million kids have been stave, saved from stunting. We know, and, and Congress, on a bipartisan basis, has authorized its continuation. And then – 
just it, it, just last week they reauthorized it. So for another five years, um, the U.S. Congress has mandated uh, a continuation of programs in agriculture, nutrition, uh, efficient food aid that have really worked. Unless you work in this field, you'd almost yeah. never know it, right? It gets so little public attention. Of course, the, the news is dominated it's by a, it's a six. It's a six now. billion dollar five year commitment from the U.S. Congress on a bipartisan basis, and the the Trump administration has supported it. So uh, it's almost sure that the president's going to sign it, and it'll be law. Incredible. It's a very, very good it's, thing. It's fascinating to me because you know an educated public is is really what is key to all of this because. You know, the, the programs that, you know, we're, that we were just talking about are vitally important to all Americans, and they're, they're, they are extremely bipartisan in nature, much like solving hunger problems uh, and, and, and working on jobs programs in other countries are uh, economic development initiatives, they're safety and security initiatives. I've been in many hot spots in the world where jobs programs, you know, prevent young people from, you know, being angry in the streets or then being easily radicalized. I know that seems like a big jump, but it's really, really true. I've gone, I've gone into Syria and seen it. I've gone in uh, to uh, Palestine and Lebanon and all of these places and, and countries in Africa where there's an extreme amount of unrest. Can you just give us an example of something that you've seen or uh, followed? Uh, sure. I mean, I've, I've, I've a ton of stuff that I see every year, but one that some people may remember was the story that we did on the uh, Women's Couscous Cooperative uh, in Jericho. Um, we went into a, a small village there, and there were there were no men, very few. Most had you know gone off to to fight somewhere. Many had you know become jihadists, and the rest had been killed in wars and skirmishes. It was a very, very impoverished village. But one woman had decided that they, they needed a school, they needed a clinic, and they needed to have just the bare bones essentials, you know, refrigerators, things to keep medicines and foods in. And so what she did, because every woman in that town made couscous by hand every day, was set up a very rudimentary cooperative and took her money and at first it was one woman then two three four now there's dozens and dozens that show up every day make couscous they're paid by the pound they have some production managers they actually have a package brand that's now sold throughout the levant and uh they're trying to get it sold here and they've been able to open up uh, not only uh, a small school and a and a nice size clinic but now they're working on a library just the simplest of acts can have incredible, incredible impact on a community. Um, half the people in the world who are still hungry live in countries that are on the edge of conflict, either in conflict or on the edge of conflict. So it's just clear that um, hunger contributes to conflict, conflict contributes mm -hmm. to hunger. Once again, connections between issues that we often treat separately but right. could only solve if we treat them holistically. Exactly. And and it's in our best interest to do it. We do a great job for example talking about, you know, what fair trade means to coffee farmers in uh in Peru. We need to do a better job of having that same conversation and illuminating the public on what it means to be enacting a lot of these programs around the world. And, you know, yeah. we, we've we've been at this for such a long time, right? Both right. of our, and, and it sounds like you too, Andrew, just 
you know, share our strength and bread for the world and generating awareness around this hunger issue. Even the hunger issue in this country, after all the years combined that we've worked on it, there's still a lack of awareness that we have hunger in America. And, you know, so when you think about the global wins and the global challenges, it's almost like insurmountable to me that people would, you know, have an inkling of what's happening. But in our own country, we have a lack of awareness after all of this work that we've been doing to generate it. We still have people who live in Washington or intelligent and read, you know, read the paper and read books and say we have hunger in America. Hunger in America in, in many cases is, uh, you know, we, for example, we can see it in our schools, right? It can be quantified and we can see it in our schools. But there's a lot of shame and, and other stigma attached to it. And what we don't see are the elevated numbers where, you know, working, even in many cases, working class, double income families, you know, do have to choose between medicine that week and whether or not every member in the family is going to have food in the refrigerator for themselves. The flip side of that is what happens internationally, uh, where, you know, there's a not in my backyard uh, component to this. There's an ethnocentric uh, component to this. A lot of people are very vocal that, you know, they feel we need to fix our problems at home uh, before we start solving other problems abroad. The IRC, which is the uh, International Rescue Committee, was uh, formed by Albert Einstein back in the 30s. Today, it's led by David Miliband, uh, Tony Blair's former foreign secretary. And, you know, we're trying to uh, solve refugee crises around the world. It is a it is a massive task, but it is a it is a local and a national situation for us here in America and it's a very impactful way to solve problems that we need to solve in hotspots around the world where other human beings are dying. I happen to be working very hard and very publicly both through the IRC and through a new group that I joined at the UN to make sure that people understand that it is in our best interest economically, socially, and you know every way that you look at it to make sure that the citizens of the world uh, as it shrinks, also enjoy the benefits of, of food and jobs and self-esteem and dignity and respect, because that means that we have to get involved in, in fewer and fewer programs and fewer and fewer conflicts. Andrew, I want to uh, just express appreciation for what you said earlier about the time in your life when you didn't have a pot to pee in. I just I think that's really important that you're candid about having struggled with addiction and that you're candid about being struggling to put food on the table yourself. In fact, uh, in this country, about a third of the people in the country live under the poverty line at some point in our lives. Everybody, almost, I mean, a lot of people, if they haven't gone through a period of not being able to eat adequately themselves, somebody in their family is struggling with it now, it is, this is not something that is rare. I mean, on a given day, one, one in five kids in our country is living in a household that's food insecure. So this is, you know, it's pretty common. And I just, I really, a contribution you make, Andrew, is to be candid about that because I think a big change in our country will come when more people are, are willing to come out of the closet on this. I mean, it happened on gay rights that when, when gay people were willing to say, you know, I'm gay, then it wasn't like those people, you know, somebody over there. Yeah. Then it was, oh, this is my son. This is my nephew. And, and it just changed. And within 10 years, it, it changed how we think about sexuality. And we need that on hunger and poverty. We, 
we really need people to be candid about the extent to which uh, they've been in and out of, of food insecurity or where somebody and they have somebody in their family who's struggling. I will add the same thing happened with addiction and alcoholism. While we still have a huge problem, we're going through an opioid crisis in this country. There's a huge, huge, huge alcoholism and addiction problem. There's still shame and stigma attached to it. But over the last 30 years, we have created a a social opportunity for those uh, stigmas to be rolled back. One of the things I wanted to ask uh, David about is the White House Council on Economic Advisors recently said uh, the war on poverty is largely over and it's succeeded. And I would say, although there's been a lot of progress, we know that that's not true, that there's still right. the poverty that David described. And one of the things that I think is uh, hard for us to do in this country is to sometimes stipulate that two things can be true at the same time, which is one is that we have made a lot of progress very encouraging and affirming. Uh, But two is that there are still a lot of people who are hurting and in need, and one doesn't necessarily negate the others. We've got to keep our eyes on both of those things. Right. We have made a lot of progress, and it's important that to know that most of that progress, almost all that progress has been due to the federal anti-poverty programs, programs like SNAP, food stamps. Um, What we haven't done in this country very effectively for the last generation is to improve earned income opportunities for for even the middle income people. And at the bottom, there's been very little growth in earned income. There are ways you can fix that. So the White House Council of Economic Advisor concluded, well, we've made progress. We, don't, we can cut the programs and um, make tough work requirements, make people get into jobs. I don't think that's the way forward. I think we need to keep the programs and then do things like pass a minimum wage act you know, or increase the minimum wage you can provide bus services from low-income neighborhoods to where the jobs are. And that would be a dramatic improvement in the opportunities of people to, to make a living in this country. And there, there are a whole bunch of things that we can do to provide earned incomes that are policy things. But it's going to take um, people like us to push to, to, to make it possible for more families to support themselves. One of the things that Arthur Brooks at American Enterprise Institute says is we've made poverty more bearable but not uh, more escapable, or at least not escapable yeah. enough, which I think is another way of right. saying what you just said, David. We've made great progress in, you know, in getting nutrition to kids and to families, but they're still not getting the earned income that they need themselves you know, out of. Well, you know, hunger in a way is an or- can be an organizing. It's an organizing center. A lot. If you're going to reduce hunger, it's not enough to give people food assistance. That's not enough. That's important, but that's. But there are other things that need to happen to get to the end of hunger, which is a feasible goal in our time. And those things include the things that you do to improve earned income. Like Maybe it seems like a tangential issue, but it's not. Uh, criminal justice reform. You know, the, the fact that in, in communities of color in our country, a lot of young men are arrested and prosecuted and, you know, a disproportionate uh, weight of the criminal justice system falls on people of color. And that just makes it, it, once you've been to prison, you can't get a job for 10 years the rest of your life, maybe. So, uh, and, and we have some people, we have more people, I think we have the second highest rate of incarceration in the world. So hunger is an organizing principle. You know, you kind of, I mean, I think hunger is pretty close to what God wants for <laughs> ending hunger. That's pretty close to the center of what God wants for us. And it, you can pull, you see, like the social movement, 
the social change movement that Andrew was talking about, one way to center that is to look at what are the things that we need to do to end hunger in this country and around the world. And I mean, there are things, and you just named a bunch of them, that people can advocate for. And I guess I'm, you know, I kind of get frustrated when I think about what needs to happen with our political leadership versus what needs to happen at the community level. So how do we how do we think about what really needs to happen? Not just with you know federal leaders, but even our even our state leaders. Mm -hmm. And how do you how do you make change if you can't you know if sometimes you can't change the political leadership that you need to to have? But we can't. I mean, I I would insist that we can. That we can. Okay, we can. It is. I just see it over and over again. You have a hundred people in a congressional district get serious about an Africa issue. They often change that person's. What conservative liberal? And do you target and, spe- do you target people to advocate? Absolutely. Right. So there's and, certain kind of influencers and that you. Just about the same time that Andrew's restaurant opens up in in uh, Minnesota, we're going to have elections. We got to get out and vote. Vote for candidates who are going to help us end hunger and do all the things that. I mean, it's it's a broad push in in a direction. You can tell if a candidate wants to push that way. What's our our basic problem to me, in in terms of moving forward is we need to create more give organized yeah. give a damn well, and, but i think citizens if we vote if we make it clear that we want to to uh, help people in need to make it possible for them to get out of it our I, the members of congress i know are nice folks and they'll listen to people all the time uh david as as both a minister and an economist you're in a unique position to make the moral case and the policy case for ending hunger. Um, how do you frame that? I believe that uh, God loves me and lo- loves everybody else. So if you believe that, then you uh, try to change the world to make the world consistent with the fact that God loves everybody. The economic case is clear. I mean, in our own country, um, the cost one cost of food insecurity in our own country is $160 billion a year in healthcare costs. So if you're trying to reduce the U.S. deficit, Spend the money to help people get out of hunger. or And it doesn't even require all that much money. There are things you can do that don't cost much money that uh, open up opportunity for people who are struggling to feed their families. But what, to me, the, the jump that many people don't make is that we need to, to get the government to do its part. You can't, fo- you, you can't food bank your way to the end of hunger. You've also got to have that organized give a damn so that and especially the federal government needs to provide leadership. And then that within that context, uh, businesses and charities and communities and low-income people themselves can do what they need to do to get us to the end of hunger. It's also true globally because the U.S. is the only remaining superpower. And it just is not – I mean, other countries have got to do what they've got to do to get, out, get their people out of hunger. But it makes a lot of difference if the U.S. government is leading international efforts to make it possible for people to escape from hunger and poverty or if the U.S. government is really not interested in that. I, that's such a leap, I think, for you know so many people I talk to, the domestic crisis, uh, hunger in America versus hunger globally. And we touched on it earlier and just this sense of, like, let's take care of our own first. Not, you know, let's take care of our own, yes, and, you know, to me it's an and, not sure. an or. And I find myself in these conversations a lot uh, with people who say, you know what? Yeah, there's hunger around the world, but we have to take care of our own. And, you know, I don't know how you get really people to understand or to see or to feel. As you're talking about, when you first started addressing this, you said it was almost a spiritual 
It was God for you who says everybody deserves, you know, to mm-hmm. eat. And I just feel like that's a really that's a that's a pretty tough argument. I don't see the borders, but a lot of people do. And so I guess you just have to keep talking to people and, you know, yeah. trying to persuade them. And that's well, all you can really and do. And right? on global hunger, like a place like Ethiopia, people who are hungry, the desperation, the damage is just so much more severe. You know, the kids oh, life and death. One in five kids in the world is stunted. And what that means is they didn't get good. It's mainly due to poor nutrition when they were, uh, before they were born and during the first two years of life. And what we know is that if, uh, if the most obvious symptom is that they're not as tall as they might have been. But um, many kids who are, many kids who are stunted die from, measles or something like that. And then many, many more live, but physically and uh, intellectually, they can never reach their God-given potential. The damage done, especially what kills me is the damage done to the brain. In severe cases, in, in poor countries, if, um, if, you, if you do, if you do uh, a scan of that brain, for a severely nourished children, child, you can see holes in the tissue. Hmm. So it's um, one in five kids in the world is stunted. And it is cheap and easy. We know exactly what to do to uh, reduce stunting among children. And if we, if we just do that over the next uh, 10 years, there will be transformational change in the world. Two, over the last uh, 10 years... Uh, two countries, Ghana and Peru, have done what they should have done, and they've cut stunting in half. I mean, <laughs> those con- everybody in Ghana and Peru will be better off for the next generation mm-hmm. because all these toddlers now have yep. their yep. bodies it and brains. Everything. <laughs> it affects everything. It affects everything. Yeah, and it's easy to— The economy, f- education, it healthcare, is easy, all of it. It is relatively easy to fix. It some, takes uh, Some of that, uh, like, nutrient fortification and that type of thing and Well, the, yeah, and, but the most powerful ways to fix it are uh, education. Edu- the first one is just to focus on um, the first thousand days of life from conception to age two. That's that's where you can make the biggest difference. So if you have limited dollars, focus. Second is education of parents about um, about proper about the importance of breastfeeding, how to feed kids well. Uh, we don't all know it, and certainly really poor people in developing countries don't know how to do that. And and also about hand washing with soap. If people learn from experience. When their kids wash their hands with soap, they don't get dysentery and diarrhea. They will find the money to buy soap. And so that basic education is really powerful. And then there are other things you can do, like um, kind of a souped-up peanut butter. So if you see pictures of a baby who's uh, starving to death, visually starving to death, wasted child... uh, if that baby gets access to this sort of souped-up peanut butter that you can, <laughs> that's now available in the world, and it's it's a miracle drug, they revive. Yep. So so there are a number of things you can do, but the the oh. the main ones are are try, focus, and educate the parents. You can do that by radio. So what I'm excited about is you could do it in a conflict zone. 
you know, where people are, where the bombs right. are falling. You can get in there safely they, through well, they, they, your voice. They listen to the radio. Right. So you can teach parents what they can do even under very mm-hmm. severe conditions. The other thing is you can do a lot in poor countries for not much money. You know, if the average income in a community is $400 a year and you can help them out with 50 bucks, that's a transformational difference in somebody's right. life. Or you David spend a Witt. couple hundred bucks and put a well in the ground. Exactly. exactly. I didn't mean to give it. Where, but it, Or you know, open up a school. Yeah. That's what I mean. But, right. you know, you can pay a teacher for maybe $500 a year, and all those kids learn how to read and write, add, and subtract. I would expand on, on, on one side of that that I think is, is, is really important to underscore. We, we always talk about food being the thing that touches us all every day. That, you know, and, and you call called it the organizing principle. Um, I think that's, that's a really, really good way to talk about it because you've got to start somewhere, right? I mean, you know, it's, you, you can't be, uh, you know, using a ready, fire, aim approach to things. This, is, this has got sequential logic to it. And I think, at, at least for me, um, and maybe it's because I'm a food guy, so I, I, ordin- I just, you know, very logically look to hu- hunger issues, food issues, food justice and all of the different things that I work for really hard. I use it to, to, you know, talk about everything from, you know, addiction to adoption, you know, from, from jobs programs to, to, you know, the, the crime issues in our country. Um, it's what I go into prisons and end up uh, speaking about. I just was out in San Quentin uh, at their behavioral program, uh, they're talking to uh, a room of 500 inmates about it. And I think through food, we can do everything. But I think that what, what we've learned over the last five or 10 years, and certainly speaking for the food community that I'm a part of, is that it, it, it no longer became sufficient to do uh, fundraisers where we cooked a fancy meal. It no longer became sufficient uh, to sit in a room and talk about uh, volunteering at, at uh, the local food shelf, although I still do both and encourage everybody to still do both. What became obvious to us is that we needed to change laws, that we actually had to get to Washington. And that, that I think, is that, that part of the secret sauce that has really changed over the last couple of years. Look at the Beard Foundation boot camp. Look at the, what David was just talking about. I mean, everywhere you look, People are mobilizing folks. You know, look at the, the work that No Kid Hungry is doing, you know, yep. getting, getting advocates in the right places to actually make the change in our laws that are required for us to really start getting down to brass tacks and making more progress on these issues. If we don't change our laws, nothing is going to change. Well, I, I, want to, uh, I don't want to skip over San Quentin because I'm sure a lot of people are listening and they want to know <laughs> how you got there, what you did there, what, what that was like for you. Can you tell us a little bit more about it? Um, sure. You know, I've, I mean, I've been sober for 27 years and I'm very public about it. Um, and as David was talking about uh, earlier, for the last year uh, before I got sober, I was homeless and uh, could not feed myself. I was a petty thief. I was a user of people and a taker of things. And, you know, my family and friends, uh, rightfully so, didn't want to have anything to do with me. And quite frankly, I had reached the point where I just wanted to die. So I really didn't want to have anything to deal uh, to do with them. Um, I had gone from that place of, of lying about my disease and my situation to just 
not giving a damn. And I had, you know, a, a spiritual experience is the only way that I can explain it in a hotel trying to drink myself to death. And thanks to some friends wound up uh, in Minnesota, got sober, stayed sober. That's great. So was that the first time that you'd had that experience or were there some others that like almost succeeded in turning things around for you? Was oh, there something tons, special about that one? I had tons. Of, I had tons of others. Uh, I mean, what made that one work? Maybe that was the rock bottomest of all. Well, I think yeah, you hit the nail on the yeah. head. Um, I mean, at that point, I mean, I just needed to have literally no other choice but be confronted with the fact that I had to change actually my behavior. I wanted to hold on to my my teddy bear of drugs and alcohol um, as a way to keep the rest of you know my life away from me. For too long. And my whole life, people were saying to me, hey, you may want to take a look at the drug and alcohol problem. Um, much in the same way that we're talking about, hey, let's take a look at the food problem. And from there, other magical things will happen. Um, but I got sober and I stayed sober. And because I'm public about it and because I actually seek it out and make myself available, um, I do a lot of talking about it. Through all that, I got invited by the folks at San Quentin uh, to come in once a year, they have a graduation program from all of their behavioral programs. So that includes their in-house treatment center that deals with chemical dependency and alcoholism, their violence against women program. They, you know, the state of California actually leads the nation on the number of behavioral programs that they put into prisons. And San Quentin is a, is a, a place that a lot of this happens. And so I went there at their, you know, annual uh, graduation ceremony, and I told my story, and I spent the morning with the inmates, and we, we got a chance to talk. I, I will tell you, it, it helps me a lot more than I think uh, maybe it uh, helps them. I mean, it, it's a double, you know, it's, it's double duty. Um, if I don't go out and do that, if I don't make service a part of my daily activity, I, I I find that I lose my spiritual connection uh, to the world and to myself, and and you know then I then I'm in a bad place. You know you talked about you talked about prisoners and jobs before. I think the restaurant industry, if I remember correctly, is still the number one employer of or hospitality industry in general is still the number one employer of uh, inmates coming out of institutions yeah. and the yeah. number one employer of single moms. Um, so, you know, again, another way through food, we can reach out and touch a lot of people. Can I just, can oh, I, uh, one of my sons uh, was seriously addicted and went through a very similar process. I mean, first, you know, I had to, to say to my own son when he didn't have any food, I had to say, there's nothing I can do to help you. I'm, yeah. I'm working to end hunger in the world. And I, huh. but um, <clears throat> he also uh, had a similar spiritual experience and just worked his tail off to get out of it. And then, Fortunately, um, my son was arrested in a, a city that has a drug treatment court. So he was, he instead of being pushed into prison, he was given a chance to, to, um, to live under the strict supervision of a court, and the court pushed him into jobs instead of prison. And, it, and what kind of jobs? Well, he started in the restaurant business. He started, Is that right? yeah. Um, I mean that's <laughs> that's good and bad. It's also because the jobs are really low income right. generally, that's where a lot and, of people get their start. And it's part time, and but it does give people a start into yep. the job market. It's treatment and a job. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah, treatment and a job, and um, so and also, I mean, the, this, it was mainly that he he was 
had that spiritual experience that Andrew's talking about, and um, then worked. So his he was butt ready. He, he, was, he, want, he, he worked, was ready. He worked to, hard to change. When yeah. he had alienated his family, he had nobody to help him, and he worked hard to get himself out of it. So there's a public policy dimension to his recovery. The drug treatment court understood, and that that judge understood that this was a disease, um, but that you also had to be really tough, you know, uncompromising. You just have to be really tough about uh, compliance. And so that combination of the spiritual strength of my son combined with... um, Yeah, some structure for uh, him. So instead of sending him to prison for five years, they pushed him into the job market. And this specifically state, into the restaurant business. <laughs> that's state-specific, so it was No, but it's wherever. also it's supported it's, by a federal program. And we don't—of all the people, what's striking is that 60% of the people in the country who get access to drug treatment programs are white. What? So you go to—you know, a yeah. lot of the people in prison are there partly because of drug offenses. Three, you know, if you, if you have uh, addiction problems, it's not too hard to get arrested three—get get convicted three mm-hmm. times in your life. A lot of people do. So it's you very end, easy. It's so you end up in prison for the rest of your life. So, and I just one other, I mean, I, this seems like a tangent, but it is not. That we we have an opportunity. Uh, I think maybe in the lame duck session this year, almost certainly in 2019, to pass a criminal justice reform. Partly because Jared Kushner, the son-in-law of President Trump, knows something about prisons because his father went, and he really cares about reform. Uh, Senator Grassley is the leader in the Senate of a good sentencing reform bill. The House has passed a prison reform bill. So we could, you know, this is an issue on which we need to, I think it's a hunger issue, and it's a very gettable thing. So in picking sort of, at least as we try to pick which issue should we work on at any one time, we, I mean, we always keep track of things like funding for SNAP and WIC and But they're all it, related, you're saying. But, These are but not then there are other opportunities, there are other opportunities yeah. where... Congress and the president are willing, are, seem like they're ready to move on an, on a big issue that affects that that affects a lot of struggling families, and you can uh, and so if you give it a push, if grassroots people across the country push, then bread for the world and others mobilize around that. I appreciate that SOS is with us on a lot of these things. Yeah. Well, David, well I, can can I just double back on something that David said? Because I think it's really 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 important. Uh, the the fact of the matter is is that you know we talk about where to begin. And, you know, we, you know, I'm a hunger first person for a variety of reasons, but mostly because, you know, I mean, look, hunger doesn't cause alcoholism uh, and drug addiction. Hunger doesn't, you know, quote unquote, cause crime in the minds of a lot of people. However, when you give the gift of hunger relief to someone, I'm talking about real relief, not not a handout for a day as important as that is. But when we provide real relief to people in communities in this country, that is the sprinkling of dignity and respect that allows for one less, you know, little moment of shame and stigma to start to dominate their lives. And it is shame and stigma and the resulting trauma from that that is a contributing cause to addiction and uh, and crime. And we know a lot of crime is fueled by addiction. 
when you add addiction and hunger into the situation, you know, as David said, it is easy to see the cycle we're in. But the fact that 60 percent of the people who have access to treatment is white is exactly the kind of thing that we're trying to solve uh, here in this country. You know, there are diversion programs that are local that people can advocate for to their state house in their mayoralties, to their city councils, much in the same way that we can think micro locally and be promoting the food shelves and the other places that like-minded people are able to gather together and, and get bigger messages across, starting at the town and city and council level and, and moving all up. I think this is a very internecine web of issues, um, and all that's required of people is not to get too freaked out about the where do I start, it's so complex, I can't possibly make a difference as one person. I would implore people to just find something that they can relate to. For me, it was food. For others, it may be, you know, another issue. And just start. Just take that one step towards being a part of the solution because we really do have a system in this country as much as we trash what's been going on, as much as I'll speak for myself, as I trash what's been going on for these, you know, uh, you know, since November of last year, uh, two years ago, um, I really do think we have the greatest system in the world until proven differently. And I think we can use that system to our advantage. There's some problems that I think are not solvable, at least in the near term. This is not one of them. This exactly. We have the food. Yeah. We have the resources on this planet. We yeah. could we could solve this problem. Uh, thank you. Can I, yes, can please, I Andrew. Last thought. word. Yes. I, I, will, I will just say one of the ways that I got involved is I started to get involved with Share Our Strength and No Kid Hungry. Yep. Yep. And I think that's a I think that's a you know, the work that you guys have done was was the leadership and the inspiration and help get get me involved. You know, and if people are interested, all they have to do is what, you know, I did a long time ago, which is just go to nokidhungry.org. It's really simple, easy way to get involved. Well, Thank sure. you, Andrew. Thank, thanks for saying that. So andrewzimmern.com is how we find out all the yep. things that you're up to. Uh, Everything. And breadfortheworld.org. No, bread.org. Just bread.org. Yep, easier. Um, bread.org. <laughs> so uh, David Beckman, who's led it since 1991, thank you for being with us today. Thank you, Billy. Andrew Zimmern, um, thanks and good luck in the, all the new ventures and including the new restaurant, Lucky Cricket, coming in November. Thank you. Uh, Debbie Shore. Great, thanks, thanks. for being with us. Great show. I'm Billy thank Shore. You. Add passion and stir. Add Passion and Stir is distributed by District Productive. Our executive producer is Peter Ogburn. Add Passion and Stir is the creation of Billy Shore, Debbie Shore, and Paul Woody Woodhull. I'm Billy Shore. You're listening to Add Passion and Stir from Share Our Strength.